From Casa de Esperanza's National Latino Network, I'm Paula Gomez-Dorty, Senior Director of National Training and Technical Assistance, and this is Conversations Over Cafecito. We'll be exploring identity, talking to advocates, parents, nonprofit leaders, trailblazers, policy influencers, and more about what they wish they had known before entering their profession or area of expertise. And in today's podcast, we'll be talking to Bambi Salcedo. As noted in her website, she is a transgender speaker and activist, as well as president and CEO of Trans Latina Coalition. Bambi, welcome and thank you for speaking with us today. Thank you so much for the opportunity and um, I also want to take this opportunity to send my love and appreciation to all the listeners uh, who are joining us today. Thank you. Thank you. So I have been following you and reading about you and looking and looking you up on YouTube and then uh, seeing some of your interviews and also you have a documentary, Transvisible, that I'd love to hear more about. So it's, it's evidence that you are a powerhouse advocate activist. So wondered, what was the beginning of your activist career? What propelled you? What ignited you to become an activist? Well, primero que nada, quiero darle gracias a nuestro creador, verdad, por la oportunidad de estar aquí con con todas y todes y todex. So, anyways, it's a customary thing that I do um, before I, uh, I guess, start speaking at any place. Right, uh, and this place obviously is no different. So I, also, you know, so I just wanted to acknowledge my privilege, you know, to be alive today, and also, you know, the privilege that I hold as a trans Latina mujer emigrante indocumentada, you know, who has the privilege to lead a national advocacy organization, and that is based in Los Angeles, and that it really, it's a uh, small but mighty organization uh, that provides uh, life-saving and supportive services to trans people in Los Angeles. You know, like, again, it's a privilege that I get to lead the very first translator organization here in Los Angeles that is providing life-saving uh, services to trans people. Um, so I'm, I'm definitely honored, and I want to, you know, really, like, recognize that um, because that's not the reality for many of my siblings. Right, and so you know, with with my privilege, obviously, I have come to be, you know, who I am today because of the support of people. Right, um, I personally do not consider myself, you know, an activist. Right, I um, consider myself a servant to the people. That's just because it's. I believe it's my destiny, or my destiny, I should say. And so, you know, how I come to be, or how everything started, I guess, you know. Um, it was because, one, I was seeing myself with privilege, right? Um, I had the opportunity. So I, I think we have to understand, like, many different aspects of my life, right? I have, I come from, you know, the, I come from the streets. I come, you know, I have been able to survive, you know, homelessness, sex work, extreme violence, sexual assault, prison. Like, all of those things that many of my siblings are experiencing today, I have overcome, and I have um, I had the privilege, right, to, to really transform and reform my life. And so because I had the privilege, I 
felt that I also had a responsibility to to do something about the issues that I was seeing my siblings were also experiencing, but also, you know, as a trans person, that it was also, I was also experiencing. And so, because I I was able to get a job, because I was able to get into to rehab, because I was able to see things with more clarity, I, I felt that, you know, I needed to do something about it, that it was my responsibility, really. Uh, so that's how all of this came to be, but I think if we, if we, if I can just name one particular, I guess, incident that happened that really transformed my life and really, like, put me in a place for me to not care about anything and everything else and understanding the importance of us, of me really participating into changing the landscape of our community was in 2002 with the murder of Gwen Araujo. And so if people don't know who Gwen Araujo was, Gwen Araujo was a 17-year-old trans-Latina who was barely murdered in Newark, California. She was beaten and buried alive. And so that, like, really enraged me for me to, like, really like really organized and really uh, thinking about what, like where we were uh, and within our society and what we can do. So that was really, um, that's how I, I guess, in some ways, it marked my life and really set the tone for me to really take a direction, I guess, to go where we are now, you know, uh, and that has led me to be the leader of the Trans Latino Coalition. Thank you. I have so many questions to ask you. One, just reflecting on the, the horrible violence, right? The horrible for violence that you described and that trans women and people are experiencing daily. My question to you is at that moment when you said you, you organized, what did you do? Who did you go to? Who did you think needed to be uh, galvanized and, and organized? Well, you know, I, I, I think I'm going to say that the murder of Gwen Araujo really in, in different ways transformed the trans movement nationally. But then here in Los Angeles, I think there were other people, obviously, who have been doing the work before I was. And so I think them serving as an inspiration to me also, right, for them to, you know, be able to be resilient and resist right, to everything that was happening and everything that has happened even prior to that, right, like inspire me, but all collectively, right, we also thought that it was time for us to really figure it out, you know, and really like seek justice, right, like for not just Gwen, but many of our sisters that, you know, were also experiencing the same violence. And so we started organizing protests and we started doing vigils and things like that at that time. And and that's how, like, we started, like, little by little, right? There were a couple of groups here in Los Angeles that were, like, support groups. Um, and that's how I think in many different places across the country, that's how people were seeking support, you know? And the only way that we can seek support at that time, and even prior to that, right, was really coming together um, and at that time, it was on the streets, right? Because, like, in the street corners, as sex workers, that's where we find our community, you know? And then I think in the mid-'90s, late-'90s, that's how, like, people started forming, like, support groups, right? For people to come together and really talk about things. 
and that's how I think in some ways, you know, we also started organizing. I, I think what is important is that I recognize that, you know, even though I have been doing this work for over 20 years, right, there has been other people who have been a source of, of inspiration to me, um, and they have been resisting even longer before I have, right? And, and then through that, I think it's also where I get my strength, right? Like knowing that there have people been here resisting before me uh, who really support me as, you know, inspire me really to continue to organize. You had mentioned earlier that you yourself personally experienced violence and depression, and you named that you have privilege and that you were able to find a job. And looking back, who are the people or, or, or what were the circumstances that supported you through that journey? What was helpful? Well, I, I think one of the things that I think throughout my journey um, has helped me is that I, I consider myself a spiritual person. So I believe that, you know, when I had the opportunity to transform my life, I believe that that was in itself a divine intervention, right? And so... So that was, I think, the very first thing, right, that, that happened. But throughout, they have been beautiful and amazing and incredible people who have supported me, right? And so I, I think that has been sort of like, or those individuals have been sort of like the individuals who have uplifted me and supported me, right, to become the person that I am today. I always refer to myself as a community investment, right, because it really has been the community, right, and not just the trans community, but just, you know, the community, right, like collectively, cis, you know, gay, like cis people, cis, hetero, you know, people, gay lesbian, like, members of the LGBTQ community, members of the trans community, you know, people in the HIV field, people in the anti-violence field, people in the immigration field, the women, I mean, like, you name it, I have been part of so many different movements and so many different groups and being part of people's lives and people being part of my life that, you know, everyone has contributed for me to really be where I am today. So I certainly believe in collectivity and I believe in I believe in people you know because they despite the fact that we are experiencing horrible things and issues you know particularly with this administration for instance in my personal experience there have always been people who who have carried me through you know whatever it is and I think through that I have also used that right and my privilege to also support other members of my community. So that's, you know, that's how I see things. That's great. That's great. So it's, it's the community. It's the fortune to have people around you, people before you. It's multiple communities, as you described. And it's also, you said, spirituality. And is spirituality something that you practice daily? How does that help you with your resilience, with your strength, with your advocacy? To me, obviously, you know, it's, spirituality is one of the things that are, I guess, at my core. I definitely believe in a higher being that I choose to call God. And so I I communicate with my higher power every day, you know, in whatever form. You know, like I believe, I believe that I don't necessarily have to be 
kneeling in order for me to be able to communicate with my higher power, right? Like, you know, I believe that personally, as long as that, there's that communication, it doesn't matter where it is, right? It could be, yeah, and anytime, you know what I mean? It's, it's kind of like sex. As long as you do it, you're good, you know? I don't know. I mean, I, I mean, sex obviously is to me it's an important aspect of people's lives. But yes, my, you know, I, I practice different things. One is the communication with my higher power, but the other, you know, I, the first thing that I do, for instance, I drink water when I wake up. You know, that's the very first that I do. I meditate in the morning, which is obviously a form of communicating with my higher power. And I also do a recollection of what my day was which is also, you know, communicating with my higher power. And, you know, I believe in, I believe in energy. Like I carry my, you know, I carry like my protection. I carry a uh, rainbow obsidian, you know, to as a protection. I have tourmaline in my office. I have a big, uh, I have a 60 kilo amethyst in my office. Wow. Yeah. I mean, there's different things you know, that I, I, I practice, that is part of, like, my connection with my higher power, you know, and how do I also take care of myself, you know. Um, and that's one of the reasons why I also chose to become vegan about two years ago, you know, which is part of my connection and my spirituality. And, you know, people often think, like, you know, becoming a vegan is, and it could be obviously for health reasons, but I think for me it's all of that, right? Uh, it's really like my connection with with my uh, with my higher power, and also which is you know the connection to my body and everything else. So, so yeah, those are things that I that I do. Um, you know, some of the things that I also practice is that before the end of the year, I take time off and I seclude myself and I. I write and I meditate and I get ready for the new year. So I clean my house and, you know, I go to like a, um, like I guess some people would consider like a ritual type of thing. On the last day of the year, I, you know, I, I bathe with flowers and, you know what I mean? Like all of those things um, that help me to get ready and like really to help me to center myself. Like I do my vision board and, you know, like I said, my intentions for the next year. So all of those things are things that I do that are part of my spirituality and my connection to my higher power. So, yes, spirituality is something that is um, at the core of who I am. Wow, Bambi, you are an inspiration. <laughs> I mean, you actively, actively work on your self-care and your spirituality and uh, it's admirable. admirable. Yeah. So I'm intrigued. So you did this. Uh, now this is the, the first month of the year. And as you look at 2020, what is it that you're excited about? What are you excited about in the future? There's different things that I am certainly excited, you know, about the future. So, so I mean, the way I'm looking at it is, you know, 2020 is the beginning of a new decade, right? And so... I have a vision for our organization. So what I'm going to do this year is I'm going to launch a capital campaign for us to raise yeah, yeah for us to raise funds for for us to find our new home, our permanent permanent home. So I have a big challenge this year, you know, as someone who really 
does not have the experience, if you will, um, or someone who is learning along the way with this organization and doesn't have the fundraising experience or the training that other people may have. To me, to you, to me, it's it's uh, it's definitely a challenge, but I see it also as a possibility. So I'm going to raise money to do that the first year, and then in the next couple of years. So I'm going to raise money. We're going to buy a piece of land or an old building or something, and then we're going to build whatever our permanent home is going to be. So that's one of the things that we're doing, but we're also incorporating, you know, a multiplicity of services that we provide through the Center for Violence Prevention and Transgender Wellness, which all of that is going to be incorporated. I'm also looking into entrepreneurship opportunities for our community. So we want, we are going to support our community on how for them to build their own business, you know, on whatever that is, and eventually, you know, we're going to support our community with, like, small loans so that they can start their own business, and so so that's what's going to happen this year also through our policy department, what we're doing. For the first time in the state of California, we are responding to the governor's budget, so we are, we are requesting for intentional investment in trans people. Uh, specifically here in the state of California. And so so we're doing that. And we are going to be supporting trans-led organizations and groups across the state. And we're hoping that this initiative also translates into other states and the other members of our community could also adopt and, you know, do. Because um, it's important that we, you know, develop our economic and political power. Absolutely. Yeah, and so I I think those are some of the things that are happening this year. But you know we have we have bigger dreams too. We're going to continue to you know grow as an organization, and we're going to continue to you know to support our community. We're going to continue to really hold our vision, which is you know to really support trans leaders across the United States. That's so exciting. That's excellent. Fantastic. I'm excited just hearing of all the good things that are coming and that will happen. Tell us about the important Trans-Latina Coalition. How was it created? Why was it created? And what does it do? What services does it provide to the community? So the Trans-Latina Coalition started uh, in 2009, really with this idea of how do we start organizing and how do we address the specific needs and issues of Trans-Latinas who were immigrants at that time, right? Uh, so, so a group of us came together and started talking about what we were going to do, right? Because at that time there were two trans-led national organizations that were doing amazing work and incredible work, but they were not addressing the specific needs and issues of trans-Latina immigrant women at that time. And so that's how we sort of like started. We started with this idea of how do we address the macro issues that affect our community and really thinking more like policy and, um, you know, how do we influence policy and how do we influence legislation and how do we organize to, you know, at the local level also to, you know, to address some of those things. And so we did, you know, really great work uh, for a few years 
Like for instance, in 2012, we developed the very first report that would highlight the specific needs and issues of trans-Latina immigrant women who were living in the United States, uh, which is obviously available on our website. But, you know, we also did like the Dying to be a Woman uh, video, which is which was about silicone injection in the trans community. And we also did, I mean, we did a, like, like a lot of, I guess, macro work, if you will. And as we were doing all of that, we were also seeing different challenges that our community were facing. And so in 2015, our national group came together and developed a strategic plan. And during that plan, or during that meeting, the national group decided that in order for us to address the basic needs that our community were not being addressed, in this case, access to service provision, that we also needed to do service provision. And so how, that's how the Center for Violence Prevention and Transgender Wellness came to be. And we got our first grant in 2016, you know, to be able to provide case management to individuals who were getting released from prison, jail, or immigration detention. So we started with like a reentry case management model. And then, so that was in 2016. We are now in 2020. And just, uh, you know, four years, we have been able to build a million-dollar organization. We have here in Los Angeles reentry services. We have legal services. We have an anti-violence project. We, we give lunch every day. We have, you know, interns. We're developing our health, mental health services. I mean, we, like I said, you know, in, in four years, we, there's now 10 of us working. We have a rapid response team in New Mexico supporting trans people who are getting released from immigration detention, but also those who are inside immigration detention. We, you know, we, we do a lot of, like, my recidivism work. We do a lot of uh, criminalizing work. I mean, we do a bunch of different things. We also do policy. We have a policy department. So, so yeah, I mean, you know, that's, that's pretty much what we do and what we have been doing. So I think um, we're projected that in the next, we're projected that in the next, I guess, three years, we're going to be like a $3 million organization. Wow, that is exciting. That is fantastic. And in a relatively short time to do all of that growth for a nonprofit. I, a lot of what you said of what you're providing really describes sort of um, the experiences of trans Latinas. But I wanted to ask you so that our listeners could understand what are the challenges? What are the experiences that trans Latinas are facing in the United States, you mentioned immigration was one. Can you expand on what you're hearing women say? Yeah, I mean, I think definitely. So I think uh, it's important that we recognize that, you know, the challenges that any trans or gender non-confirming individual face are sort of like intertwined with one another, right? But I, I definitely, I'm going to take the liberty to say that trans women particularly are more, I guess, uh, prone to be victims of violence. And so certainly violence is one of the things that, you know, trans Latinas experience. I mentioned a little while ago the report that we did in 2012, which is called the Transmissible Report. And 
in that report, 99% of the individuals who were interviewed who were all trans Latina immigrant women reported that they fled their countries because of violence, right? So, so in other words, seeking refuge here in this country from the violence. And in many ways, you know, trans women or, you know, trans individuals who are Latinx trying to seek refuge in this country and trying to find the American dream, we often find the American nightmare when we're here, right? For different reasons. One is that I think we also have to understand the acculturation process that needs to happen uh, for someone who is an immigrant, right? The the shock of culture that happens through that process is definitely one of the things that is also a challenge, right? It's not it's not the same when you migrate, for instance, from because even like Los Angeles, San Francisco, New York, you know, those are big cities that many people who are of trans experience tend to migrate to, right, uh, from the United States. But when you come from another country, such as, you know, Latin America, for instance, it's definitely a culture shock, right? And so, so then, again, the acculturation process that needs to happen, which includes, you know, the food that we eat, which includes, you know, how we dress, you know, customs that we may have, our friends, you know, if we have family, you know, the family that we left, the family that we have here, and how oftentimes, you know, some of our family members don't want us to be who we are, you know, so that's also a challenge in itself, trying to navigate that, which oftentimes leads for us to end up on the street, right? Um, the immigration process, obviously, is another thing that affects our community. So, you know, many of us, especially right now, how the crisis is at the border and through the immigration process and obviously the practices that ICE continue to portray, right, also affect us deeply, right? As we know what is happening in the border, for instance, there are trans people and trans women particularly who are also stuck in the different borders, right, and who are sort of like, even though they turn themselves in, they can be taken in because the process that they have right now is that everybody has to wait for their term, right? And they don't understand that, you know, we are running from violence all the way from, you know, from the different places to all the way to the border, right? So, like, when we are longer in places where, where we are, where we could potentially be victims of violence, right? Like, that fuels the violence that we experience. So that in itself is definitely a challenge. Not only that, but also those who have the ability to turn themselves in and end up in immigration detention, right? The experiences of trans women in immigration detention are completely different than all the individuals who are detained in immigration detention. And I know that one of the focuses right now, right, like, or the rhetoric, yeah, the rhetoric that is happening is, you know, this separation of families, right, which is obviously super unfortunate and bad, really, but people don't really talk about the injustices that trans women experience in immigration detention, right, the violence that we experience even inside immigration detention, despite the fact that, you know, there, there was a memo in 2015 that DHS put together, um, I mean, um, um, ICE and the Homeland Security, right, put together, you know, saying that, you know, trans women were supposed to be safe in ICE detention. That's not necessarily true, and despite the fact that, you know, ICE has created 
a particular part for years now after that memo came out that you know that are dedicating a specific unit to house transforming, which they claim is better, right? Um, but that's not necessarily true. So, so that is happening, and, and also that unit that they have uh, housed about 40 trans women, and we know that there are trans women in other immigration detentions like San Diego and Texas and Georgia and, you know, in other places, Arizona. And so those women particularly obviously, you know, have even more challenges, right, than the ones who are in this trans-specific and dedicated part. And so, so all of those things, you know, we don't talk about those things, right? Like we don't talk about the specific issues that trans women who are in immigration detention uh, encounter. Also the immigration process, right? Like even those who, through the advocacy efforts, that we as an organization do, but also other organizations do. Trans women are getting released. Their cases are pending, for instance, and they're released to really nothing, right? Their cases are pending. They don't have IDs. They don't have social security number. They don't have, uh, again, the acculturation process. They don't know the language. They don't know uh, oftentimes people, right? So I, I think it's great that, you know, people are connected to our organization, and so that's how we're able to support them in whatever way possible. But there's so many different things, right? Um, which, again, when a trans woman gets released to really with nothing, you know, because, you know, we pick them up and, you know, we take them to the store to get them calzones and to get them, you know, just those basic things, right? Um, they they don't have. When you're released with, you know, from ice, for instance, oftentimes you're released with, you know, one of those jumpsuits, vapor jumps, you know? Wow. So, you know, so like, how do you support people? And so, you know, so we, we do that, you know, we, we're lucky that we have built uh, legal services, obviously, with the support of a, an organization, but, but then, again, once they're released, if they don't have, like, those basic things that they need, what happens? We resort to the street economy, right, as means to survive. And so there's so many different things that happen, right? And so when we go back or when we resort to the street economy, then other things come up, right? Like we're prone to more violence. We're prone to be criminalized. I mean, we're criminalized for who we are anyways, but we, because of the activities that we have to engage in, right, like then we're prone to be arrested, which then, we're prone to be also not only be arrested, but also be convicted and also be probably sent back to immigration, right? So it's a constant cycle that happens that many people are not aware of. And so, so yeah, I mean, and then everything else that trans women and the trans community as a whole experience, right? You know, discrimination in employment, for instance, accessibility to medical health, or, or healthcare services, or access to education, like all of those things that are what are defined as social determinants, right? Really are what dictate where we are within our society, how we are positioned within our society. And if you add, right, like this intersection of being not just being trans, not just being a trans woman, right? Because that's just one thing that we have, but 
if we also add the layer of an immigrant and the layer of undocumented, the layer of, you know, the language barrier. I mean, like, it's sort of like um, those barrier plus, you know, added layer. I know that was a lot, but, you know, it, it, it's our truth. Yeah, yeah, no, it is a lot. It's the intersectionalities, it's the layers upon layers. And so how, how do people come to you? How do trans women, trans Latinas come to you? Is it they themselves or is it uh, a service provider, a friend, a family member, or all of the above? All of the above, uh, but I think um, the majority of the people that come here to access services are really word to mouth. You know, like I said, we are connected with trans women who are in immigration detention and also in prison. And so, you know, there have been cases to where, you know, people have been released and the very first thing that they do is just get here, you know, whether it's through with the support that we provide, with the local people who we work with, and then, you know, once they get here, you know, then we figured out a way to support them. Um, I think one of the things that we, that, that I felt to mention earlier uh, about the services that we provide is that um, we also have a transitional housing program that is called the HOPE House. HOPE is an acronym, uh, so it stands for Helping Our People Evolve. So it's a transitional housing program that is six months and we support people. But, you know, we also have, because it's privately funded, we also have the ability to house people in, the, in an emergency basis. And so we're not, you know, they're like locally and everywhere else, right? They are shelters and they are, you know, housing programs that are, uh, that are for the most part, government funding and there are limitations with that, right? And so for us, we have uh, the privilege and the ability to really uh, make decisions about how we are, you know, even though it's a program, it's a six-month program, transitional housing program, we do have the ability to make decisions if we need to help someone like on an emergency basis, we do that. Um, but we also work with other emergency housing situations. Uh, or even, you know, if we, or, if we have to pay for someone to stay in a hotel, we do that. It really depends on people's needs, and we really work, you know, we, we truly do the work as, I'm going to say, as they should be, right? Like, we're looking at the individual and their specific needs and how you support that person, even if it's one person at a time, right? And that's how it should be. You know, oftentimes, again, there are many organizations who have programs, but those are like cookie-cutter programs that are limited in scope, you know? And so we, the work that we do, you know, I, as the leader of the organization, understand program management and program development, right? And so even when we submit proposals for, you know, for government proposals, right, because we are um, private and government funded, we make sure that, you know, whatever we're posting, we're really looking at the individual. We're constantly consulting with uh, not only our team, but with our community. You know, we have monthly meetings to really design programs that are really not only needed, but that are tailored specifically for our community. That's comprehensive. That's fantastic. Is there anything that, in, in terms of our listeners, how can they help? How can they help uh, Trans-Latina Coalition what can they do? Well, there's different things people could do. 
You know, and I think the very first thing that anyone can do, and there is super simple and super easy to do, and I think the first thing that we need to start with really is for us to open our minds and our hearts, right? Like, really, if we have the willingness to do that, then we can see where we are, right, as individuals, and we can see how we can support people, right? And in this case, you know, if we're talking about translatinas, I also want to say that, of course, you know, I, I want to invite for listeners to, you know, to support our organization, which is the Translatina Coalition. But I also want to say that there are many different groups and organizations that are in other places that are also doing great work that I would I want to invite people for them to learn about them and to really support their work and to really support trans leadership, right? So so I want to invite for people to do that. But if people want to also learn about, you know, the work that we do, you know, please check out our website. There's multiple reports that we have generated. Uh, that people can have access to if they want to learn more, that, that they can use for programs and grants that they want to write for their organizations. It's free information, you know, so take advantage of that. But also if people feel enticed to really donate to the great work that we're doing, please become one of our, uh, you know, recurrent donors, whatever you can. I mean, if you're a wealthy person and want to, donate space, we're looking for a space, you know, please, you know, support us in that way. Or if you want to donate, you know, a million dollars, we also welcome that, you know. Um, <laughs> or, you know, or even if it's $10, right, like if it's $10 a month, like I said earlier, we, you know, we send commissary money to transform and court and immigration detention, and right now we're sending $30 per month, and right now we have 30 people that we're sending, so we're spending about $900 a month just on commissary money, so if you want to sponsor a trans woman, and if you can make a donation of $30 a month, we'll support someone who is in immigration detention, so that's another way, but, you know, we're constantly looking for uh, beautiful and amazing people that wants to support our organization, so I think depending on people's abilities and people's skills, right? We, you know, we welcome, you know, uh, people's support. Like, if you're an amazing grant writer and want to help me to write a grant, please do, because I am, we don't have a development person, we don't have a communications person, you know, like, I'm it, right? And so, like, I'm juggling multiple hats, you know, and multiple, I'm doing multiple things. There's definitely people that help me, but but my work is very challenging, and especially now that I I, I want to raise a lot of money for our new home, you know, I'm definitely going to need more support than ever. And so I would also, you know, want to people to be invited, I mean, I want to invite people to follow us on our social media, you know, uh, so that people are updated on, you know, what we do. And also, you know, like we we... Right now, we have a campaign to free Kelly. So Kelly is a uh, 23-year-old Salvadorian trans woman who has been in immigration detention for over two years. And right now, she's the trans woman who has been in immigration detention the longest. And so we are 
we are demanding that ICE releases her. And so if people want to sign our petition and, you know, if people have, you know, if they can talk to their elected officials to sign on our congressional letter, it would be great. So, yeah, I mean, so there's, there's a bunch of ways that people can definitely be involved, not only with our organization, but, again, I want to really encourage for people to learn about the local work that is happening and how people can support you know, all the work that is happening. Um, but of course, you know, please do support our organization, but also don't forget about other amazing work that is happening in other places. Wonderful. So for listeners to, to support their local community as well as your organization, and if they wanted to find you, is they could find you at translatinacoalition.org? Yes. I mean, like personally also, like, you know, like if people want to see what I'm, you know, what I'm up to and stuff. Um, people can certainly, you know, check me out on my social media, Facebook slash Bambi Salcedo, and Instagram at Lavambi, L-A-B-A-M-B-Y, and on and Twitter at Yo Soy La Bambi. So, um, yeah, so that's another way that people can totally, you know, follow me. I don't use Snapchat a lot, um, but I also have an account in Snapchat. But, but anyways, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, I think probably the, you know, the ones that I use most commonly. But yeah, and anything that I could do to support, uh, please let us know. And, you know, uh, again, we're always looking to work with people and collaborate with people um, because the work does not happen in silos. At least we know that. Absolutely. Well, Bambi, this has been an absolute honor and pleasure. I want to talk to you more, and we are at the end of our podcast, but I was thrilling to hear you. Really exciting. I'm excited for your 2020 to come. Lots of goals and plans. And we'll absolutely have you um, on the podcast again. This has been another episode of Conversations Over Cafecito, brought to you by the National Latino Network for Healthy Families and Communities, a project of Casa de Esperanza that builds bridges and connections among research, practice, and policy to advance effective response to eliminate domestic violence and promote healthy relationships within Latino families and communities. For more information, visit nationallatinonetwork.org this podcast was produced by the National Latino Team with music by Horton. Thanks for listening.